Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me as always is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, when kids come to your house and say trick or treat, in the U.S. we typically answer treat. Nobody really wants to have their house egged or toilet papered. Especially not if it rains. Yes, especially not if it rains, which it often does in Wisconsin in the fall. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, you're really quite lucky if it's not actually raining on Halloween. Yep. But sometimes that means it's snowing instead. Uh, but I believe that during the Middle Ages, tricks were a little bit more common. So today, we're going to start talking about where they came from in relation to, you know, Halloween, but also in relation to other holidays where um, there was some topsy-turvying reversal of roles, the rich served their servants, and their servants got to wear crowns and stuff like that. Yes. So, um, one of the interesting things, of course, that we talked about um, last year in episode 18, um, and then also a little bit this year, um, in our episode on treats. It's probably going to be 43 or 42. Oh, cool. Um, so. Or 41. One of those. <laughs> Maybe um, I'll, I'll edit this so that everybody yes. will only hear the correct number, but 41, yes. two or three. So episode on treats. <laughs> um, and it's this interesting sort of weird area of Halloween really is a modern holiday that exists in the U.S. And has now kind of been disseminated to a lot of the world. But a lot of the world does have fall festivals that celebrate, like, the dead. Um, because, of course, fall is connected to death mm -hmm. <laughs> and spring to rebirth, right? Yep. So in Christianity, of course, you get All Hallows' Eve, you get the commemoration of right All Saints' Day, All Souls' Day, um, and then, of course, in the spring, you have Easter. Um, so we've talked about this before, and how syncretism is sort of part of Halloween, but really also <laughs> um, the modern U.S. holiday is kind of unique. But you do have syncretism in places like um, Mexico with Day of the Dead, um, where it was a way to have the sort of Aztec celebration survive was by kind of syncretizing it with Halloween. Um, and there are ways in which sewing is a little bit syncretized with Halloween, but really ultimately Halloween is, as we think of it as this modern holiday. The funny thing is that because of that, it's sort of accrued a lot of things that don't really have origins directly in the past or do mm -hmm. kind of have origins in the past, but not in a direct route the way we might think they do. <laughs> so um, one of the things we talked about last year and also this year um, is the idea of guising, meaning disguising, being disguised. <laughs> um, so dressing up, right, and going around and dancing in the streets or going door to door. Um, mummers would do this, right? So mumming is one you know, sort of masquerading um, is one example of this. So we've discussed this a few times. Um, and the thing is that there are a number of holidays where you could do this. 
So today, um, again, Halloween is like the holiday where you do that. That is where disguise has, you know, gone. We dress up for Halloween. I, we don't really dress up for other holidays that I can think of. No. That we would consider secular Christian holidays. Right. I was going to say Purim, but yes, special. Right. Well, but Purim, right? So in Judaism, you dress up for Purim. Um, and yeah, that it's a similar idea, but it's a different holiday with a different sensibility. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's actually a sort of reenactment of, you know, a scene from the past, from the Book of Esther. Yeah. Yep. Right. So the interesting thing is that that's actually a little more related <laughs> to where some of the tricking sides of Halloween might come from. Um, and that is that really the idea of sort of tricks, pranks, stuff like that, have more to do traditionally in Christianity with the Easter New Year season than with Halloween. Um, and this might seem a little weird to us because Halloween is this kind of offbeat holiday, right? Where um, I believe we have talked, I know we've talked about liminality. Um, we talked about it also in episode 18, so last year for Halloween, note eight, and we talked about it again in episode 19. Um, and liminality comes from the Latin word for threshold and means transition, essentially, right? So a lot of holidays are transitional, right? Um, so Halloween, of course, is transitional because it's the fall. So everything is dying. That is transitional. <laughs> um, Easter, things are coming back to life. Right. Also transitional. Yes. Birth mm-hmm. and death are great liminal moments. Yeah. Um, there are many others, of course. Like birthdays are liminal, right? You get a year older. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have been slowly getting a year older. But like that's the thing that commemorates it, right? So it's like you right. are... 19 and then you're 20, right? And there's sort of this day when you pass through. <laughs> um, and some are more important than others, like 16 when you can also get your driver's license or 21 yeah. when you can also drink, right? Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, coming of age rituals. Yes. Can often, are often pointed to as like liminal because you, in some cultures, like literally leave your house and go through some sort of ritual that may involve you know, pain or something frightening, and then you come mm-hmm. back and you're an adult. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, kind of like Barabat Mitzvah, not physically painful, but often scary. <laughs> right. Um, you know, there's lots of... There, you are like, shouldering like, responsibility. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, back at my congregation where I grew up, we had a tradition of throwing candy at the person who was being Barabat Mitzvahed. So, oh, that's fun. Like, yeah, and it was, like, hard candy. Ah, sure. <laughs> so, it... Uh, <laughs> a little bit of my pain. Brother, yeah, my brother hid behind the rabbi. Um, oh, that's Because smart. we were really, like, winging it at him. Yeah. <laughs> so of course. It could, it could be a little bit painful, yeah. Right. Um, yes. Well, these are the fun things. Um, yeah. I mean, th- of course, that is absolutely the point. And it's fun because we talk about this in class a lot. Um, so a quinceanera, similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the idea. Those are, of course, birthdays where, right, where culturally we've defined you become an adult, 
right? So that's the whole point, right? That you've become an adult. So that's why it is a little bit painful. Um, you may not actually leave your house, but you have to get up there and like lead a service. Um, and, you know, in sort of popular mainstream culture outside of certain religious elements, um, I would say, and by popular mainstream, you know, we're sort of talking like Protestant, European, Class. American yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, that there isn't quite that definitive when you become an adult. Like, mm-hmm. theoretically, legally, it's 18, but mm, it's a little bit it's a little <laughs> bit more wishy-washy, which is actually can be problematic yeah. in various interesting ways. Um, but yeah, like, you know, certain cultures, you have the bar bat mitzvah, you have the quinceanera that really define, like, this is when you become an adult. This is when you're grown up. Um, and that's, of course, a transition. And deserving of a party, usually, is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but the important part, of course, is that idea of transition and the ritual. Yes, the ritual that surrounds it, which famously, I believe we also discussed in our previous episodes where we talked about this, but um, brings up the idea of communitas. So the community that is formed by celebrating the ritual, because the entire community celebrates it with the people who are going through the transition. Um, and it sort of brings the community together. It's a way to make sure that everyone is sort of an equal part of the community, at least for that moment. It's supposed to sort of take away hierarchies, right? And sort of level the hierarchy so that there isn't like the rich and the poor and the this and the that, but like everyone's kind of equal participating in this ritual of transition, right? Now in practice, of course, it may not always work that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some bar mitzvahs take place at like the aquarium, and some take place at, like, the synagogue, you know, kitchen. But, like... Yeah. <laughs> um, some but people that's hire sort of the Kendrick Lamar to come to their bar mitzvah. And yes. <laughs> some of us are, you know, not some up don't. for that. Right. Yeah, some don't. Um, but, yeah, but in sort of in theory, right, there's supposed to be this idea of community that's created. Um, so this is all really important because, obviously, for us and in general, I mean, Halloween is an important transitional holiday in that sense of life and death. We certainly recognize it that way today. And so it fits in very well with this sense of kind of, um, why wouldn't you have a day that's kind of like the purge, which is the big example we bring up in class. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. Students usually, I try to let students usually will think of this on their own because obvious reasons. Um, and then we talk about it. But obviously, it was a movie series. I think that it was maybe a TV series. Now maybe it's a movie again. Oh, no. Anyway. Um, <laughs> God, popular culture has gotten weird since I stopped paying attention. Yes. Uh, but the idea of The Purge, I'm going to admit to not having seen most of them. But um, the idea is, of course, that there's like one day a year when literally anything is allowed, including murder. Right? And you get like 24 hours. That's it. Um, and so... Basically, you know, they're the people who can afford to barricade themselves and the people who can't. But there is a sense that, right, you're supposed to be able to level that playing field, right? Get at the people who've barricaded themselves and punish them. And anyway, Mm -hmm. it's a horror franchise. Um, More recent ones have played actually really with this idea of the the whole point, right? That uh, if it's really liminal, if there's really a transitional moment happening here, that what has to happen is that there is this leveling of the playing field, that there's a community built. Um, and so how do you do that? It's a horror franchise, mm-hmm. right? Um, recently, then there's been a sort of play on people going beyond the 24 hour period as a way of trying to level the playing field because the 24 hour period isn't really level. 
because the people who can barricade mm. themselves, right? Um, so all this brings us to the really interesting point that liminality is a great theory and it sometimes works, but it doesn't always work, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because a tradition that's supposed to create community, sometimes it does. And sometimes sort of in the words of George Orwell's Animal Farm, some are more equal than others. Sure. Right? So sometimes that sense of community is not created. Um, and the transition doesn't quite happen the way it should. Um, and this is where we're going to bring in Bakhtin, so, um, who I don't think we have really talked about, unfortunately, before, which we should have, and so now we will. So this is Mikhail mm-hmm. Bakhtin. He's Russian. The name might give it away. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, 1895 to 1975. Oh, but he's a modern scholar. Yes, he's a modern scholar. Okay. We should have talked about him in episode 39 on libraries, but we did not because we didn't really have time, which is okay. But <laughs> we'll bring him up now. We had a lot of history to get through, to, we did. to be fair. Yes. But um, so he was really um, interested in this idea of um, festivals. And what do they really mean? Right. These liminal festivals, some of them are very sedate, right? They're liminal. There is a transition, but it's a kind of sedate transition. Some of them are violent, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Not necessarily Halloween as much in the past, right? But some festivals are more violent. Carnival. Um, Carnival to this day in countries that celebrate it. We're really talking about like Mardi Gras, right? Right before Lent. You're going to have to give up everything for Lent. You have this one final moment to sort of blow off steam. Um, this sort of transitional, right, liminal moment to blow off steam, and then you're going to, you know, really <laughs> buckle down. And it, it can be a little purge-like, the carnival, right? I mean, hmm. famously, yeah. sort of carnival, it does happen, of course, in certain areas of the U.S., um, like New Orleans, right, that are Catholic. Um, and it can it can be dangerous. It can be dangerous for women, Right. So there there is this true element of sort of violence and danger and that anything goes sometimes in ways that can be very problematic. So how are you creating a community? What type of community mm-hmm. are you creating if this is the type of liminal ceremony, transitional ceremony that's going on? Right. If you are fusing like tricks, tricks very quickly move past something that is just a prank like toilet papering a house and into, you know, throwing rocks through your windows and maybe worse, right? So yeah. what what happens with that? Um, so a quick note that Bakhtin um, wrote during World War II, actually, I think is when he really completed this text um, for his doctorate. <laughs> um, he wrote this text on the term, what he sort of terms the carnivalesque and the grotesque. Mm-hmm. Um his doctorate, it was denied. So he was denied his doctorate. Whoa. Yes, because it was sort of controversial. People did not like what he had to say. And by people, I, mm. you know, his committee, the university. Jeez. So it, so this was World War II. It wasn't published until 1965 mm-hmm. um, when it was published under the title by which it is now known, which is Rabelais and His World. Oh. Um, yeah. So we mentioned Rabelais. Change. In episode 39, because um, there's this great moment where he sort of makes fun of libraries. Mm-hmm. Not libraries per se, but he pokes fun at the sort of um, ways in which libraries 
became over serious archives of what what knowledge should be preserved and what knowledge is not worth preserving. Right. Um, and so he sort of parodies that idea and undermines the sort of, you know, Foucauldian idea of power knowledge <laughs> um, via satire. Um, and it's that exact idea, right? That use of satire that Rab that Rabelais has. Rabelais is, of course, a medieval author, right? He's born, we'll say, by 1494 and dies in 1553. So he's very late turn, end of medieval, beginning early modern. But mm-hmm. um, you have Bakhtin looking at this and thinking about the use of satire and the ways in which um, Rabelais' sort of work as a whole um, really emphasizes the subversion of all of the kind of institutions of the Middle Ages, right? Mm-hmm. Of which that library episode is just a tiny, tiny, tiny example <laughs> of what goes on. Um, yes. And so the, oh, also worth mentioning, interestingly, um, Bakhtin had um, osteomyelitis and ended up having to mm. have his leg amputated in 1938, Whoa. I think. Um, yeah. So he also was sort of interested in the idea of disability a bit. Disability studies wasn't a thing yet, um, but this was a part of his interest in the grotesque. Ultimately, also came, um, and his idea of the carnivalesque, specifically, which is based on the idea of carnival, right? That this is a time of chaos that subverts normal law and order. Okay, right. So Halloween is that type of sort of liminal holiday, theoretically, right? The modern Halloween. Um, it's a time of chaos that theoretically kind of subverts normal law and order, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the carnivalesque. Obviously, carniv- carnival is supposed to be that exactly, right? It's this moment when you blow right. off steam and then you go into Lent, right? So having blown off steam, you can kind of make it through Lent, right? Um, okay, so then the grotesque, similarly, is a means of subverting um, sort of the noble or the spiritual, mm-hmm. right? And bringing it down to the level of the body and the flesh, right? So... So, like, emphasizing something like, you know, that this person is a great hero, but then they're going to die and be a yes. corpse. Yes, die and be a corpse. Or also, like, that's what, that they sorry, had that's to poop. That's a little Kristeva, like, right. yeah. Bakhtin would be more into the idea that, like, they had to poop, and probably there were mm-hmm. days when they had diarrhea and <laughs> stuff like that, right? Right. <laughs> right. Um, I remember being yes. told there was a lot of typhus at yeah. the Battle of Agincourt. Sure. Don't I mean, think everywhere. That was talked right? about as much. Yeah. People, yeah. I mean, this was always the problem with armies is that you got terrible food. And so things that were exacerbated anyway, like deficiencies of different kinds and mm-hmm. whatever, um, you know, got even worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, scurvy. I mean, yeah. You know, there are all these things that were, but, um, yeah, so, but that's the idea, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the sort of sense of, um, obviously, this is also a religious commentary, right? So you get religious mm-hmm. orthodoxy. Um, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, you have religious orthodoxy uh, that we have definitely talked about with, like, the anchorites and anchoresses and mm-hmm. so on, um, where you have this idea, right, that the flesh is tainted. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the spirit must escape the flesh. Right. You must purify your flesh with like fasting and stuff so that your spirit can be better. It's a very ascetic outlook. Yes. 
Yes. And so Bakhtin's sort of point is that the grotesque subverts that. Drags mm-hmm. us all back into the realm of, like, the fleshly, the mortal. Yes, the decaying, defecating, all of that stuff. Right. Right. So um, these together, right, his idea of the ways in which um, the carnivalesque and the grotesque subvert um, law and order and tradition. Um, and there's this sort of, um, you know, first off, Rabelais does do a lot of this, you know, so satire and comedy are great places for this. Um, but it's also worth pointing out that this is, in a lot of ways, how we do see Halloween's, holidays like Halloween, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Mardi Gras. They are seen as moments of carnivalesque, where people can sort of blow off steam that get sort of rid of law and order, but of course also deeply tied, obviously Halloween is deeply tied to ideas of like mortality, mm-hmm. right? Um, and undercutting, you know, what is really the celebration, it's the evening before All Hallows Day, right? We're supposed to yeah. celebrate all of the saints, right? Um, and then I the mean, fall- hmm? ap- well, appropriately, my four-year-old's been running around in a skull mask for the last week. Yes. So. <laughs> yep. Well, also, um, I know that you have awesome decorations in your neighborhood. Yes. People in our neighborhood have gone insane. I do feel like the past year has really given it up, right? We need to blow off some steam. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, But one of the ones you sent a picture of was somebody's yard, right, where there's like a giant spider mm -hmm. that has tied some things up, but then there's also skeletons that are like kind of buried in the grass that are trying to escape, sort of. (laughs) So they took a bunch of whole skeletons and tied them up like they mummified them like like you know they were going through the murkwood forest or something and got caught by a bunch of spiders and so they're hanging upside down from the tree and there's like two giant inflatable spiders which by the way like the heads move Ah, like back and forth and then there's a bunch of like skeleton body parts on the ground yes under the tree also but like they look like they're they're in positions of motion, mm-hmm. right? Like reaching or, or yeah. you know, yeah, it's really great. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> it's fantastic. They also had like a little thing on the tree that like screamed as I went past. <gasps> like there was like a wow. motion sensor and it oh, scared the good. bejesus out of me the first time. It would. And then when I went back to take a picture, it went off again and <laughs> scared me again. So good awesome. job. <laughs> yep. Um, but right, that that is the grotesque. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. They're pulling us out and saying, look, you are mortal, right? I think we've, before, I think we have told the tale of the three living and the three dead, which Mm -hmm. is a medieval tale that was beloved. It's illustrated in a lot of manuscripts. Um, I think we talked about it in the plague episode. I think probably. That would be near the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because, of course, that's where it becomes most famous. But where three, like, living princes meet these three rotting skeletons um, and the, you know skeletons say to the princes, you know, as you are, so once were we, and as we are, so you will be. Um, yeah, absolutely, right? So that idea of the grotesque, pulling us down, right, even the greatest person will be a skeleton, <laughs> trying to escape the grass under a giant yes. spider. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the grotesque, and of course, the carnivalesque, we're all blowing off steam. We really need it after the past year and a half. Um, it's, it's probably true. Yes. 
Right. So it's this phenomenal moment. It's not quite the purge, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. but that's sort of the, the elements of that, right? And it's perfect for that because it is this transitional holiday of sort of life and death and fall right into winter, which is also life and death. Um, now, okay, all of this is fantastic. The problem is actually the problem that the Purge franchise seems to have started to recognize, <laughs> which is... It's funny, because, you know, some, there's some really smart horror movies. I mean, horror, this actually goes to sort of the same idea. Horror is another great way of subverting a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, horror and satire. But here is sort of the problem, right? Uh, so the argument that sort of set out, not exactly against Bakhtin, because a lot of these theories are very, very important, but that is the argument that sort of is a complement to what Bakhtin said, is... Um, that it doesn't work the way we might hope it does. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, <laughs> there's no true subversion. Mm-hmm. You are blowing off steam, but that's it. There's no real change, right? Mm-hmm. And this is sort of unfortunate, because obviously a liminal holiday with transitions, there is supposed to be real change, right? You go from being a child to being an adult, um, whatever it is, there's supposed to be a sense of real change, but frequently there is not real change. Um, and so the problem is, right, moments of carnival are contained within prescribed limits, right? Like the purge, you mm-hmm. get 24 hours or you get whatever it is and that's it. Yeah. Right. So, so the subversion isn't real subversion because everything goes back the same way afterwards. There hasn't been actual change. It's unclear sometimes if there's been real change transition right have we really transitioned to anything else or are we just exactly the same um well i mean after halloween we're the same but with more chocolates in our house in theory (laughs) yes so (laughs) right there have been some changes yeah but Um, it's not you know it's not like lasting political change or not i don't even know exactly what that would be in terms of halloween yes right well or even just sort of lasting personal change Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't I really guess coming to terms with your own mortality or right. <laughs> something or something. Right. Yeah. Um, or even. Yeah. I mean, any number of things are possible. But even if you think some of the ones that really are set forward, like when you graduate high school, when you graduate college, um, mm-hmm. getting married, these are certainly changes. But sometimes one of the things people talk about is that they are set up for us to feel like we have changed in ways that afterwards we might not actually feel anything has changed. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes people feel like they failed, right? Because they're like, I I didn't make the change I was supposed to have made, right? Which is also a problem because, like, maybe you didn't make a big change. Lots of people don't. But it is these expectations mm-hmm. are set out there, right? Um, so that is a sort of interesting element of it, that sometimes things don't change. And certainly as a society, sometimes we don't change. Um, and so part of the problem is... If you are trying to make real political change, you can't use these moments because they're, they're prescribed. So, <laughs> uh, everyone blows off steam, but then, then that's it. There's, it. Right. It's not sustained, right? They won't build up enough steam to actually revolt or cause a real revolution, which also means that these moments may not be subversive at all. It's just an illusion because they've really been built in there by the institutions, right? Like the Catholic Church. It gives you these times to blow off steam so that you won't uh, 
actually revolt. Or so here we're getting we're getting back to Foucault's power structures that yes. you're always. <laughs> excuse me. I <clears throat> the most pretentious way to put it. We're always already involved in the power structure, and you know you may be up on the building throwing you know planters at cops or something, but the amount of rebellion that you have is the amount that they're willing to give you, basically. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. And that, of course, is something else that really, interestingly, we've seen in the past, like, year and a half. Right? All these questions yes. have been raised. Is there going to be real change? Have we just been given the amount of rebellion that we're allowed to have? Where With does Joe that... Biden worth of rebellion. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, arguably, he... I mean, oh, he clearly no. was, because January 6th made him worth it. Right? Mm -hmm. Somehow. Right? But that's, that's its whole, that's a whole other issue. Um, but that becomes the problem, right? So, <laughs> um, because no everything. Joe Biden. Sorry. Yeah. I don't want, but um, if, yeah. You he's, know. He's got aviators. It's fine. Yep. That's, hey. It's fine. I mean, he won. And he, did. he won by more than anyone ever has, which does say something, at least. Um, but of course, right, that's the problem is you have to keep doing it. Now we all have to go vote in midterms, or by the time this right. comes out, we already will have. Um, or for gubernatorial races, also, in Virginia. Um, and the midterms so, are in 2022, aren't they? Yes. Yes. So yeah, We will, will not have voted yet for <laughs> midterms, but yes. we will have voted, we, in by which I mean Virginia, Virginia yes. will have voted for gubernatorial races already. Yes. So everybody, um, keep your eyes out for any upcoming voting. Yes. And, just and go. But oh, that's sort oh. of the problem, right? Is that frequently people can only sustain that like every four years. So they mm -hmm. can get excited about the president. I don't even think it's, I mean, this theory would posit that it's not even just because the president is the most important, theoretically, you mm -hmm. know, or it looks to be, even if he's not or she isn't. One day it'll be a she. Um, it's also that um, it's just that you can kind of only get up the steam for it every sort of four years, right? Mm -hmm. So... Maybe you're the sort of person who really cares about midterms, but then maybe that's what you do every four years. <laughs> yeah. Right? Maybe you actually skip the presidential elections. I mean, there's just this weird thing. Or maybe you do manage to vote every two years, but you're still not probably voting in your local elections if they happen in off times. Mm -hmm. Right? That it's such an issue for people to sustain it. Um, so precisely because you have these sort of prescribed moments when you're allowed to do things, you won't do anything that's actually proscribed or forbidden um yeah so that that is kind of the huge issue right can we sustain it can we keep voting can we keep marching in the streets until there is change um sometimes the answer is yes right the mm -hmm. monuments have come down here in richmond robert e lee finally came down Woohoo! Um, yeah we talked about him back in like episode 11 yes yes and he finally just came down um in september <laughs> so yeah. it took a while it definitely took a while um and you know there were lawsuits and whatever and they were in the summer of 2020 everything else came down but mm -hmm. they had to wait an extra year plus to to take him down um but that's the sort of interesting thing right sometimes it can be sustained but so frequently it can't be so this all put together right means um and as i said the purge franchise kind of figured this out right that this or maybe the people in the franchise figured it out. As I said, I haven't watched it all. But that you weren't really... The fact that there was this time when you were allowed to do this meant that really what was happening was that power was just maintaining itself. 
because the rich barricade themselves and everyone else fights for it. And then the time is over and everything's back to the way it was. Except mm-hmm. all the people who are fighting, you know, they kind of help maybe killed themselves off, but the people who are rich and barricaded are fine. So how do you start to change that? Right. Um, so these are sort of the questions. So this brings us to the idea of trick or treat. Um, this isn't really attached to All Hallows Eve in the Middle Ages, but the idea of trickery or of sort of making things topsy-turvy definitely exists in the Middle Ages. But again, right, with Bakhtin, you have this problem of the carnivalesque. <laughs> when are things sort of just blowing off steam, but really mm-hmm. they're part of the power structure? Is there ever anything that isn't part of the overall power structure? All right. This brings us to <laughs> um, the big example, which is the Feast of Fools. And the great thing about the Feast of Fools is that it doesn't happen at either Halloween or Easter, but at Christmas. Hmm. Which is fun. Because Christmas is not a season that we think of as a tricky season. Right. Mostly calm, quiet, going to mass and, I don't know, giving people presents and... Right. That's what Charity. Yeah. Right. Give to food banks, etc. Yeah. Probably some sort of unpleasant dessert, like a plum pudding or something. <laughs> yes. A figgy pudding? Is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Better, no. honestly. Uh, I mean. Anyway. Um, the funny thing, of course, is that you do have, you do have remnants like um, Dickens, I mean, Victorian ghost stories, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that you would tell ghost stories at Christmas. Um, obviously, Christmas Carol is one of those, right? We sort of associate it with Halloween, but, and obviously, you know, theaters do it kind of from Thanksgiving through Christmas. Mm-hmm. But it, it is, of course, a Christmas story, right? It happens on Christmas, where he's visited by all these ghosts and, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's a little bit of a reminder, that Christmas can be seen as this interesting season. And one of the reasons is that, presumably, um, Christmas is, of course, another liminal holiday, not so much for the people celebrating it, but for the person being celebrated. Right? Ah. It is his birthday. Yes. (laughs) So, um, his actual birthday. So, I mean, not historic actual, but in the sense of we are celebrating the birth of Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so... That's liminal, right? Birth. Um, also, of course, liminal, the fact that he was divine and chooses to become mortal. Mm-hmm. Um, these things are also a little bit topsy-turvy, right? Um, so the idea that someone who is divine would choose to become mortal is sort of bizarre. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea that a tiny baby would be considered, you know, the future ruler of the world. Everybody's is, savior. Right. Um, when he's born in a manger and all of these things that have accrued to his Mm -hmm. story. Um, Obviously, all of that is really emphasizes this sort of weird flipped hierarchy, right? He's not born to a king and queen in a palace. You know, he's not born surrounded by gold, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. He's born surrounded by farm animals. Um, Yeah, so there is built into it, actually, this sort of interesting idea of what we will eventually get as misrule. However, um, this still sparks the eternal question, and this is actually an ongoing debate among scholars about the extent to which the Feast of Fools was a sort of subversive folk holiday, 
or was in fact an official liturgical holiday that was not truly subversive at all. Hmm. Yes. Okay. So, um, we're going to talk about the run-up to it, and then we'll probably talk about the full holiday and the debate and stuff next time. I will say we're going to give a shout-out to um, Max Harris, who wrote a book called Sacred Folly, that also definitely has a subtitle of some kind, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Sacred Folly. And um, he definitely goes with the idea, which is more generally sort of accepted at this point, that the Feast of Fools itself is actually a liturgical holiday, but there were sort of all these um, things that did exist kind of before it that maybe fed into why it occurred Mm -hmm. that were potentially a little more subversive or at least a little more (laughs) um, non-institutional. Okay. If not outright subversive. Um, Yes. So So then then he maybe postulates that the holiday itself was created to sort of capture that energy and subdue it in yes. a way. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, because, you know, it's instead of when you can't lick them, join them, when you can't lick them, create a thing that looks like the thing they're doing and have them join you, mm-hmm. and then you can control it. <laughs> I guess Many years the ago, they did that here in Madison after... Our very famous Halloween thing had yes. sparked riots a couple of years in a row. Yes. They created a family-friendly, quote-unquote, holiday called Freak Fest that people were encouraged to come bring their kids to. I remember the first couple of years, people were yes. very skeptical because they had, like, carts with hay bales to ride up and down the street on. Yeah. But I do think it eventually kind of caught on. Yes. So. Yeah. I will say, I have not actually been to those. They're skeptical about the hay bales because of flammable things and the memories of the riots. Yes. I do remember some of the riots. And definitely, I mean, even when I was in college there, and definitely when you were as well, um, you, there started to be a time when like you couldn't, like you couldn't get a room in Madison that night or you they yeah. sort of stopped you at the city limits if you didn't live there or something. I don't know. I mean, I did live there, so I wasn't. But yeah. they're trying not <laughs> to let people in, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, at the same time, I have some extraordinary memories. Very wonderful memories of Halloween on State Street. You know? Yeah. So both of these things exist. One of my memories, I will say, is a group of people dressed exactly like all of the knights in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I mean... Nice. Like... You know, the highest quality level. Mm-hmm. These people were probably like designers, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> highest level quality. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway. I remember one week, one year, seeing a bunch of people who had insects costumes, like very Ooh. large and like articulated, like they were moving things to move the wings. Oh, wow. It was very complicated. Yeah. Like real art pieces. Yeah. I actually have been wondering if the Halloween decorations that I'm seeing are sort of like people who would normally want to do that and they're right. thwarted this year. Yeah. So they're like, what can I do around my house? Right. Yes. Because, right, we're still, we still are in a pandemic, yeah. so you can't have the huge things that you might otherwise yeah no absolutely right um okay so um here is here's sort of the rundown um we might as well actually begin with with the opening of sacred folly 
right? Because this is the famous description of the Feast of Fools that people know if they if they know it. Like in the popular imagination, this is how people have heard it described. Um, so we'll just – I'm sort of just going to quote from like the first – literally the first couple of pages of his book. Um, okay. So on the 12th of March, 1445. Okay. So basically, uh, this is nearing – this is the point at which – the Feast of Fools has been going on for a couple, few hundred years, um, and it's going to start getting suppressed. Because <laughs> mm. all things do, even things that were at one time sanctioned, end up getting suppressed. Um, and it is worth pointing out, of course, I mean, this is the whole idea, right? That even something that was perhaps created to control holidays, festivals, you know, celebrations that seem subversive eventually after a few hundred years, right, then itself is seen as potentially subversive, mm -hmm. right, and has to be shut down, um, which is interesting. And of course, um, one of the things that Harris points out is that that's really more about sort of external politics and the way things work in the institutional world, and has nothing to do really with whether or not the celebration itself was really seen as problematic in any way. Right. But once from an institutional standpoint, you decide it's not working for you the way it's supposed to, you do what you can to shut it down. Right. Um, so this is OK. Here we go. This is a, this is a famous, you know, letter, basically. <laughs> um, all right. So the 12th of March, 1445, uh, the Faculty of Theology at the University of Paris issued a letter. All right. To the sort of general rank, the clergy of France. Um, they wrote <laughs> that they felt compelled um, quote, to describe how much we abhor and how much we execrate a certain kind of ritual merriment, which is called by its organizers the Feast of Fools. All right. Um, and so they claim that the origin of this, so they claim in this letter in 1445 that the origin of the Feast of Fools was pagan and that it was condemned by Paul and St. Augustine and that it was based on festivals surrounding the calends of January. This, of course, is the 1st of January. We're talking about mm -hmm. Roman calendar, right? The calends are the first. Um, so they're claiming, right, that these the Feast of Fools has its origins in festivals surrounding the calends of January. Um, and that the, you know, cunning plans of demons um, <laughs> had created the foul and ungodly rites that were associated with, like, Greek and Roman festivities um, around January 1st. Right, and th these had survived for centuries under the cover of the Christian feast of the Nativity. Right. Okay. Um, so worth pointing out at this point that obviously Christmas is the twenty fifth. The first of January is not always the New Year in medieval Europe. Um, it was in Roman Europe. I mean, in the Roman Empire, it was the New Year, but it was mm -hmm. not always in medieval Europe. Uh, March, March was. Um, but the 1st of January is still really important in the sort of Christmas season because it's the Feast of the Circumcision. Right. Um, and this is actually, you know, this is one of the reasons why it sort of becomes the new year. It is that new beginning. Um, and the Feast of the Circumcision for medieval Catholicism is the first time that Christ shed blood for humanity. Aha. Um, uh -huh. Yes. And this shows, of course, I mean a specific knowledge of the ceremony of circumcision, which does require a drop of blood. Um, which is a thing. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, so that's it feels like they're trying to, 
by demonizing it, like they're they're making it a lot older than it sounds like it maybe was. Yes. Well, so this is the thing, right? They actually did think that it was related to Kalins, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because there are two sides to this. Number one is that calling something pagan was obviously a way to try to discredit it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but number two, it shows that they were actually still aware of these festivals, which we will talk about in a second. Um, so there is this interesting question. And because of this, modern scholars for a long time were like, yeah, absolutely. That was the origins of it. And now you're, there's a little bit of a switch, right? Where the Feast of Kalen's festivities definitely continued into Christian Europe um, and may have influenced a number of things but aren't necessarily the direct origin for the Feast of Fools. Right. Um, but it does show this sort of definite memory of, of that <laughs> festival um, mm-hmm. on the 1st of January. So, um, all right. So they continue to complain, right, that now called the Feast of Fools, that these, these pagan, you know, um, rites are still being celebrated during Christmas week in churches and consecrated places and by persons set apart for the service of God. Meaning, of course, that clergy are doing this and they're Mm -hmm. angry about it. Right. Um, And so they go on to say that priests and clerks may be seen wearing masks and monstrous visages at the hours of office. Um, That's liturgical hours, right? Um, they dance in the choir dressed as women, panders, or minstrels. They sing wanton songs. Um, they eat black puddings at the altar while the celebrant is saying mass. So there's your, like, figgy pudding or whatever. It's not, of course. It's black pudding, but um, similar. Uh, it's they play- more grotesque. Yes. Ah. <laughs> um, they play dice there, meaning at the altar, right? Oh. Um yeah, so they run and leap through the church without a blush at their own shame. Finally, they drive about the town um, in shabby traps and carts and rouse the laughter of their fellows and the bystanders in infamous performances with indecent gestures. Right? Mm. Um, okay, so... Sounds like a good time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, all right, so this description has become really famous. Um the idea that the Feast of Fools meant that priests and clerks were masking, right? Literally, were wearing masks. So again, this reminder that disguising, guising, right? Mumming, wearing masks, doing this was not relegated to Halloween, that it was absolutely part of the Christmas season as well. Um, so here it is, right? They're saying that priests and clerks are doing this, right? They're dancing in the choir. They're doing all of these sort of sacrilegious things, right? Eating at the altar, playing dice at the altar, um, eating things they shouldn't be at the altar, and they shouldn't be eating at the altar anyway. Um, yes, playing dice at the altar, running through the town, you know, entertaining people with <laughs> presumably body mm-hmm. songs and such, <laughs> shall we say? Rude in quotes. Yeah. Um, okay, so they want to stop all of this. Um, and then they sort of close out their letter um, by saying they this all of this has to be abolished. They call it a pagan feast, pagan feast of fools. Um, And under no circumstances should a bishop or an archbishop of fools be elected. Uh, So this is a reminder of Hmm. that sort of topsy-turvydom, right? That you might elect a sort of false, not false, but a faux bishop 
right? Mm -hmm. And that there would be this sort of inversion of the ceremonies where you would sort of uh, make fun of the hierarchies and the ceremonies and the rituals that surrounded them by sort of, you know, you'd mock them and satirize them. Yeah. Um, So, right. So they sort of are forbidding all of this. Um, And this general sort of sense, right, um, of this great speech, (laughs) it's a letter, but you know, um, is first off, um, how much of it is sort of accurate? Like, to what extent is any of this accurate? Mm -hmm. Um, Because obviously, when you're condemning something and trying to abolish it, you got to really go to town on how terrible it is, right? Right. And also, how much do they really know about the, you know, Festival of Kalends and what was done during it and how much it may have influenced what's going on, right? This is 1445. So although that is a long time ago now, compared to when the Romans were doing stuff, it was Mm. definitely a long time away from them, (laughs) right? Yeah. So like, how much do they know? So these are sort of the questions. Um, The interesting sort of element of this, of course, just as a note, is that this is coming out of Paris, right? The University of Paris, um, the theologians at the University of Paris. And um, yes, talked about them before. Yes, we have. For example, Joan of Arc episode. Yes. Yep. And indeed, Jean Gerson, who was her um, actual, like, he actually supported her, but it was his campaign against women who behaved this way. Not, I mean, specifically Joan of Arc. Again, he supported her, but, you know, he was Mm -hmm. against the idea that women, you know, sort of talked to God. He did not believe this. Um, He was against a lot of other things, too. He was incredibly influential. Um... And again, at the beginning of his career, he tried to stop right the canonization of Bridget and didn't manage to. But at the end of his career, when he tried to support Joan of Arc, he also failed there. Right? He had become too influential. Um, Good going, Mister. Yes. Jerson. Yes. Well, um, he dies in fourteen twenty nine. So he dies right when all that is happening, um, and obviously before the fourteen forty five letter. Uh, however, <laughs> um, it is definitely worth pointing out um, that his opposition to the Feast of Fools began in 1400. Mm. So he is partly behind this and behind the um, the, the theology faculty at the University of Paris opposing the Feast of Fools. Like, he, he definitely he has been part of it. before it was cool. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So here he is okay. again. Um, not in that letter, but his influence is definitely seen in that letter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, so obviously the behavior described is tremendously carnivalesque and also definitely grotesque, right? Um, sex is another element of the grotesque, reminds us that we're all mortal and everything else. Um, and, you know, almost exactly 500 years later, after that letter, the way they describe the Feast of Fools is how Bactine is kind of going to think of the carnivalesque and the grotesque, mm-hmm. right? Um, they also suggest that it has pagan origins, uh, and so there's this big question of really did it, how much did it, what can we say? So, um, basically the feast, the actual feast of fools that come to exist is really more liturgical. So it is institutional, really. It arises sort of in the second half of the 12th century. And of course, lasts then through the, as we see, right? The 1400s. Um, and, it did arise quite possibly, at least in part, 
as a kind of answer to some of the folk festivals that did exist and may have been a little more subversive, which is to say mm-hmm. a little more actual carnivalesque. Um, and that is a sort of interesting separation, right? That the Feast of Fools is kind of this institutional holiday, certainly may have taken practices from other some of the other things, but was not directly related to them because it's institutional, right? And so the actual folk festivals are kind of doing their own thing <laughs> separately. Um, that being said, some of those early folk festivals that last may have been related to the festivals of Kalends. Mm-hmm. That is actually possible. So um, there's another final element to this, in particular in France. Um, there were lay societies that produced sort of fool's plays hmm. um, that kind of picked up as the Feast of Fools itself was getting suppressed in the 1400s. Wow. Um, and they sort of picked it up different again, right? They aren't picking because that's liturgical and institutional. But as that starts to go away, lay societies kind of pick up and start doing things like fool's plays and organizing parades and sort of, um, you know, similar topsy-turvy celebrations where they might elect like a king or prince of fools. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean, of course, they aren't really related again directly to the actual liturgical Feast of Fools, which is its own thing that exists in the church. <laughs> These are, again, sort of back to folk festivals, except in this case, they are lay societies doing it. So it's more like what we would say today, probably civic institution. Mm-hmm. Right? So as the church institutional celebration gets kind of suppressed, a civic institution pops up to sort of take on some of that um, carnival behavior. Right? So that you can still have it, It's but it's still prescribed. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's still not a kind of truly carnivalesque feast. But now it's civic instead of religious. Mm-hmm. Or church affiliated, right? Um, okay, so that's what ends up happening. Is it ends up they end up sort of becoming institutional? But um, let us discuss briefly how <laughs> um, there were early, and we may as well say pagan in the sense of being Roman. <laughs> um, sure, festivals. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the Kalends of January, which again is January 1st. I'm going to try not to call it New Year's because it, it was New Year's for the Romans, but again, wasn't for a lot of medieval Europe. So I'm going to try and just call it the Kalends. <laughs> Spin back and forth. Yes, I may, I may slip up, but we, I mean January 1st, and yeah. I do not mean to imply that it was the New Year for the Middle Ages because frequently it wasn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Guys, anyway. it turns out time is arbitrary. It so is. <laughs> New Year's can be whenever you want it. I know. Another thing that, of course, culturally we've started to realize happens at all different times for all different people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So <laughs> um, it is for the Romans. And um, New Year's to like, you know, January 3rd even was a festival, you know, um, and part of it could include a relaxing of the rules of hierarchy. 
Mm-hmm. So, for example, masters and servants might play dice together and stuff like that, right? Um, there was potentially, um, you know, fun, probably games, drinking, all those things, food, all that stuff, right? Um, however, there's no historical evidence that people celebrating the calends in pagan times, which is a Romans, that Romans celebrating the calends wore masks or disguised themselves um, via, you know, um, not just masks, but also costumes, basically, as sure. um, animals, which is a big thing that happens later. Um, it's not clear that there was a mocking of the powerful, right? So there was a relaxing of the rules where, like, masters and servants mm-hmm. might play games together, but not the same as, like, mocking, right? The servants weren't necessarily mocking their masters. Sure. <laughs> um, it's not clear that there were, like, the sort of house-to-house visits, the door-to-door visits that we come to know that, of course, do eventually continue in Halloween. Not so much as Christmas, but that used to happen at Christmas as well. Um, yeah, so it's not clear that any of that stuff happens. Um, oh, another thing that happens also in the Middle Ages is... Um, Clerics might dress in as women, right, in female costume. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, and you know, again, Romans did this in theater and stuff, but it's not clear that mm-hmm. any of this was part of the the Calends festivals, right? So they were there was some relaxing of rules. It was a huge deal. There was a lot of stuff, but it's not clear that there was sort of the masking or the dressing up or any of those other things, the door to door visits, um, any of those things that we associate with, of course, today trick or treating. But you know, in the Middle Ages, stuff like the Feast of Fools. Um, so it's not clear that, that that really happened. So not the not the trickery so much, just a big festival. <laughs> Less trickery, more festival. Um, that being said, Augustine, the famous one of Hippo, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. He's mid, yeah. well, he's like 354 to 430 or something. Um, he does speak out against this, right? Hmm. Um, that this is a pagan festival that people are celebrating. All right. Um, so... Interestingly, about the time he's speaking out against it, when Europe is starting to Christianize, right? Um, so, of course, you know, pagan religion is going yeah. away and Christianity is coming in to Europe. Um, the Festival of Calends is nonetheless maintaining its popularity. Um, but it's starting to include things that it did not include under the Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first signs... Um, as far as, you know, scholars who do things about masks have noticed, <laughs> um, some of the first signs of things like masking, disguising as animals, you know, these sorts of fun dressing up things, um, these things sort of start to happen shortly before 400. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so this is after Constantine, um, you know, around the time that it really does start to become the state religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's possible that this sort of, um, so there's a whole book, um, ooh, Meg Twycross and Sarah Carpenter wrote an entire book on masks that is called, um, something about masks in Europe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) good, good title. Yes. Uh, masks and masking in medieval and early Tudor England. Okay. There you go. So this is England specific masks and masking in medieval and early Tudor England, but actually they talk about a lot of other stuff. <laughs> um, beyond England, I mean, 
you know, mm-hmm. but that's their, that's their big case study. That's their specialty. Um, but yeah, so Toy Grass and Carpenter, um, do posit that the Callens masquerades that come to exist in the early Christian empire, right? So we're still calling them Callens because it's the first of January and they do seem to have evolved out of the Roman tradition, but now they, they are, at least syncretized with Christianity, maybe more than that. I mean, on some level, it's also that, you know, people who have seen or heard about, you know, maybe participated in, to some extent, uh, Callan celebrations um, have started pulling in clearly other practices, though. Practices that were mm-hmm. not part of the Callan celebrations that they now use at that time of year, which is, of course, the Feast of Circumcision, basically. Right. So, but surrounding the Christmas season. And they're starting to mm-hmm. bring in these other things that weren't necessarily attached to this festival that now are. So, arguably, this is becoming really a Christian celebration. Mm-hmm. It still happens at that same time of year. So, you could consider it kind of, kind of syncretized, but they're pulling in practices that didn't originally belong to it, like masking. Mm-hmm. And that this may be, um, Toy Cross and Carpenter posit that this might be some of the earliest evidence of sort of seasonal folk masking mm-hmm. in kind of Christian Europe. Hmm. Um, obviously... I was hmm? wondering is if as the previous um, I guess state paganisms were suppressed could some of that worship have sort of been subsumed into this holiday? Like if people were worshipping a nature god before and then sort Potentially. of that over into like, well, I'm going to dress up as the tree instead. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, potentially, right? The question is sort of, where do the festival folk masks come from? Right? Masks mm-hmm. have been used in theater. Masks are used in war. Um, sure. Masks are used for the dead sometimes, right? The death masks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of using it sort of in f- festival celebrations outside of those other contexts, right, mm-hmm. um, that it gets pulled out sort of into the streets is an interesting question, how and why that happens. Now, definitely, there are pagan cultures that did use masks in religious rituals, which, of course, is where Greek theater comes from anyway. <laughs> it's originally a religious sort of ritual for Dionysus, and they do use masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these things cross over in interesting ways, Right. Um, why masks end up being connected specifically to sort of this season, um, you know, the Calends is the huge sort of festival celebration that happens after Christmas, right? You have Christmas, then you have this huge celebration. Um, so that's, that's sort of where the Calends comes in. The masks, why the masks? Well, um, you know, it is quite possible people are pulling it from other traditions, but it also makes an interesting type of sense, um arguably with some of the themes of the season, the sort of topsy-turvydom of the season, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, potentially, um, Toycross and Carpenter suggest that possibly people are using the season to mock, actually to mock f- former, well, former, to mock pagan religion. Mm. Um, that, you know, it's a sort of sense of Christ is now dominant, Sure. And we're sort of using this um to mock the <laughs> the losing side yeah. kind of. Okay. Right? 
Um, which is interesting. You also have, of course, um, you know, not until like Francis are we going to really start getting ideas of nativity plays. But, um, that idea, right? You start to get theater about this really like in the 10, 10, 11 hundreds. You, it really proliferates. Even before that, we get some, some early plays. Um, sort of the, you know, eight, nine, 10. Um, and, Masking isn't necessarily a part of medieval theater automatically, um, but it does make an interesting kind of sense that celebrations outside, right? That just the general festival celebrations mm-hmm. um, might include disguise. If you think, again, um, you know, Christ is disguised, kind of, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> As a mortal, um, you have characters like the wise men who show up, right, um, from far away. You have, you do have these sort of interesting things, right? You have the animals in the manger that Francis sort of concentrates on, right, again, which is where I was going with that. Um, so it's weird. You do have all these elements there. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't quite explain exactly how it happens. Um, the idea that you may be mocking sort of the, the losers, the idea that there is a kind of topsy-turvydom, where you disguise who you are to be someone else, there are interesting ways in which it does tie in with the season. Um, again, right? Christ sort of disguised as a mortal. He is mortal, but also mm-hmm. isn't, right? But that idea, um, it's not something that we associate with the season today, right? We don't associate really topsy-turvydom with Christmas. We don't associate that idea of somehow disguise with Christmas. We associate with Halloween, right? right? right. Um, and yet for Halloween, it's not really about disguise. Like, that's what we've made it. But traditionally, mm-hmm. of course, it's actually about, like, the spirits who are out there. And you are kind of portraying them or trying to scare them away. Right? Here, if you think about it, it's more, um, it is actually more about disguise. Mm-hmm. Right? Of people not being what they seem. <laughs> right. Um, and so, that's the whole point, right? That the baby in the manger is actually the rule of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit like that scene in um, Much Ado About Nothing, I think, where they're at the masked ball and Beatrice mm-hmm. and Benedict talk and she sort of tells mm-hmm. him not realizing that it's him or maybe realizing that right. he, you know, he thinks uh, she doesn't how much realize. she hates, yeah, how right. much she hates right. Benedict. Yes. Yes. Right. She, it's usually understood by the way it's performed, right? That yeah. she knows who he yeah. is, but he thinks she doesn't. Yeah. He's later on my lady Beatrice, not knowing I was myself. Right. Right. But, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. So there's a, so there's a very interesting way in which that idea clearly comes to this season. It, it fits this season. Um, masks are around. They get brought into this, but they clearly get brought into this. Yes, there are, as I said, right. So there are all these cultures that use masks in other ways, for sure. But they come to this season at, because of Christianity, mm-hmm. I guess. So you might be part of a culture that used masks in a different place, but you bring them here, not because you used to celebrate a festival at this time of year that used masks. You bring them to this time of year because what's going on at this time of year, the way Christmas is sort of seen, is a time that makes masking and disguise make sense. Mm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. So, like, if the situation wasn't already kind of mask-appropriate, you wouldn't get people wearing masks. Right. But there's some sort of potentiality there already that... Yes. ...can sort of set it off. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, yeah. And I actually, I just saw, um, where was this? Someone found recently, or they, or it was just at least recently, um, you know, spotlighted, maybe, by the British Museum or someone. Um, uh, a, a mask, essentially, that's a sort of um, carved out of, like, a deer skull with the horns. And Whoa. it would go on your head, and you sort of would tie it around your head um as part of a ritual you know this is cultic okay um and yeah so it's a sort of animal mask clearly part of a ritual right a sort of celtic ritual um and it's the sort of thing that still potentially happens in certain places but of course these days um i think it it still happens somewhere in the british isles Mm -hmm. where they still do some of these dances um maybe actually around halloween now um but there, but yeah, you know, so definitely this was a tradition that kind of existed for different cultures. Um, but yeah, you use masks at times when they are required, right? Masks are mm-hmm. really potent symbols, which is another thing that we sort of have forgotten, right? Um, and by we, of course, I mean like Americans. <laughs> um, yeah. and I don't even know that all the West has forgotten. Again, this happens in somewhere in England or at least the British Isles. Um, but you know, the sort of general sense of Americans as having um, Americans who may not be super tied into their ancestral culture um, may have sort of forgotten the potency of masks, right? That they have this real meaning. Um, there's a Buffy episode. It's one of the early ones, actually. Maybe, maybe it's even like their first Halloween episode, almost, where someone casts a spell and they all like become the thing they're dressed up as. Hmm. Um, and it is the sort of reminder, right, that that was the kind of potency in masks. So, yeah, you wouldn't use them carelessly. Right. Right. Um, but the Christmas season is is a season of disguise, weirdly. We don't think of it that way, but it, it was seen that way in the, t- in the past. Right. Um, yeah. So also, we definitely don't see it as a topsy-turvy holiday. But again, it definitely was because you have a baby who's the king. Right. Um, so, Yeah. There's this really interesting way in which Christianity makes this festival, which had just been, you know, it had been the Romans New Year. It was the first of January. It becomes sort of the Feast of the Circumcision, part of the Christmas season. And because of what the Christmas season is, um, Christianity starts to turn it into this really interesting masquerade festival. Yes. So with masks, with games, with topsy-turvydom. Um, and we will come back and discuss the rest of that part of it in depth next time um, where we will go deep into what exactly happened what the masks are um where where it comes from we'll talk more about the calends we will get big into herod who of course some of you might be have already thought of some of our listeners might have thought of herod um herod is a big part of this for sure an important character the department store but no, that's Herod's. Right. <laughs> no, no, we're talking Sorry. about the the one. Yes, the Hamlet gives him a shout out. Yes. yes. It out Herod's Herod. He's, yeah. He's in um, Claudius. I Claudius, isn't he? Yeah. Mm? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Major major player. He's a famous... He's a famous role. I mean, this is why Hamlet mentions him. Even Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. who, of course, is very late because he is early modern. um, Very late compared to the Middle Ages. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because he's early modern. He's after them. Right. Um, But yeah, even Shakespeare has this sense of, you know, Herod as this really important character, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about the real guy. It's not even about the biblical guy. It's about the character as he becomes uh, in in plays, but also in things that are related to the Feast of Fools. Yeah. So, yes. This is a very medievalist way of looking at time. Like, wh- yes. what era was Shakespeare? Oh, he's like the early post-Middle Ages. Yeah, It's exactly. like, what, well, what era are we in now? We're in the late post middle ages yes exactly (laughs) okay all right yep everything Um, is medieval everything is medieval yep all right well thank you for talking to me and thank you everyone for listening we're gonna leave it there for today um but we hope that you enjoyed this and that you'll come back and listen to us talk about the feast of fools next time uh, happy Christmas and New Year's when I think this is going to come out. And um, I think that's about it. Oh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find our website. Everything is Ask a Medievalist or at Ask a Medievalist or whatever. Leave us a review if you feel like it or tell your friends. And uh, yeah, eat some pudding of your choice and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 